0: what is happening welcome to nick pocket friends where i talk to people i know and who you should know today we have scott pianowski of yahoo scott thanks so much for taking the time today uh, my pleasure nick thanks for having me uh it's it, this is something i've been wanting to do for a while i think i've been like dming you for maybe a year plus i don't know um and and scott's been someone that i actually haven't had enough time to or, or really had the opportunity i should say to really sit down and uh i don't know just to just to get to know you more i'm really happy that we have this opportunity today and uh, from afar i mean scott's been such a fantastic example of bringing great energy and wit to the baseball world not making it stilted not making it just kind of the same old thing just smart with good character behind every word and every uh every article and uh it's you know it's been great watching you inside of the the Um, you know, from where I am, I'm just kind of like a guy in a bedroom who started a website and, uh, just seeing your name everywhere and seeing how you interact with, uh, the entire community has just been fantastic over the years. And it's a pleasure to kind of just get to learn about you today, you know, where you, where you started, where you got into this and, um, let's, let's do that. Where did you grow up, Scott? We talked a little bit before the podcast started, but. You know what was six-year-old Scott Pianowski like? What was their, his dreams and ambitions?
1: Yeah, it's a lot to unpack there. I grew up in New England, Chelmsford, Massachusetts, just short of the New Hampshire border. And I grew up obsessed with reading, obsessed with numbers, obsessed with with baseball, with with sports in general. And I would, I was always reading. I would read on the bus. My older brother used to make fun of me for reading on the bus. Um, hmm. I would buy the complete handbook of baseball. As soon as it came out, I collected a lot of baseball cards, but I liked all sports. Um, but baseball was my first love. And this is maybe some people were playing some version of fantasy baseball in the, in the late seventies or early eighties, but I was not aware of it. I just wanted to know. I just thought it was cool when, when somebody hit a round number for RBIs or something like that. It, it was just cool to watch a game of the week this week in baseball um, so I grew up loving reading, loving sports, loving numbers, and just being a, a curious person. Uh, I've always been obsessed with patterns, with symmetry. I was good at math because I had a, a fairly linear mind. Although mm-hmm. the, when I got to college, I, I realized what real math was. And so, yeah, <laughs> like that that Matt Damon really? math, like get me out of here. I do not. Oh know
0: man, that. algebra in for my SAT was like my downtime. But then mm-hmm. I took calculus AB, and I was like, no, mm-mm, cannot do this. <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually took two
1: years of Calc in high school and did well at it, which I give credit to the teachers at Chelmsford High School who were great. Hmm. Um, and I remember when I first got into algebra, I thought to myself, I've been doing this my whole life, right? It's right. like you go to the grocery store, you have 20 bucks. How, how many different things can you buy before you're out of money? Stuff like that. That's all algebra, right? There's that great scene from from the movie Big, late 80s, where – the young kid can't do algebra and Tom Hanks is going to show him how to do it. He said, well, if Larry Bird scores 10 points in the first quarter, how many <laughs> right, points right. is he going to get in the full game? He's like, well, probably 40. Yeah. That's algebra. He's like, it is. Uh, yeah. I thought, I thought it was so great when they introduced algebra to me because I'm like, Oh, they have a word for this. You know, it's like, it I'm, is
0: kind of fun to know that like all sports fans inherently are math nerds too. For right? sure. You right. don't even know it.
1: Yeah. You, you did it. Like you go to, you go to a baseball game and you know back when pitchers pitch deep at a game. And if you were a Red Sox fan, you saw Roger Clemens had eight strikeouts through four innings. You're like, okay, well, if he keeps this up, he's going to strike out eighteen guys by the end of the game, right. something like that. This is—I'm old enough to remember when Roger Clemens was the young new guy who everybody liked. to. <laughs> we had no negative stuff on on Clemens, and I'll actually mention that as a Red, a longtime Red Sox fan, my favorite pitcher was actually Bruce Hurst. In hmm. part, not that he was anywhere near as good as Clemens, he obviously wasn't, but I felt like Hurst. It was more interesting to watch him struggle maybe than watch Clemens dominate. Hearst also had this unbelievable sweeping curveball that he would throw with two strikes that everybody would be waiting for. And, and um, it was yeah. free setters a lot of times. He'd get a lot of call third strikes. So, and he was the MVP of the 1986 World Series, had the Red Sox closed out game six. Hearst had already been announced as the MVP, of course. Oh, wow. Did not happen. But do uh, long answer to yeah. I grew up loving reading sports, uh, Encyclop- encyclopedia Brown novels. Sports Illustrated was
0: a big oh, man, part of my life. Encyclopedia Brown. And, oh yeah, oh I, I absolutely love those. Uh, you know,
1: I, I was on your um your panel last year. I I, I hated to miss the picture list con, pitch con this season because it, it coincided with my vacation. And I I couldn't mm-hmm. and even with that I would have tried to carve out some time. It just wasn't practical with what I had scheduled, but. The previous year, we did books, baseball books. I was on that panel um, with some some great guests. And one of the books I wanted to talk about, and it was a total stretch to include it, is I wanted to include Encyclopedia Brown in the case of The Secret Pitch, (laughs) just because I wanted a pathway to talk about Encyclopedia Brown. And if anybody's (laughs) listening who does no idea what these books were, it was a series, it was a 10-year-old kid who, this is, predates the internet and everything the books were written in the 60s and 70s at least the ones that i liked and then uh, the writer still wrote some in the 80s they weren't as enjoyable but he would solve mysteries for his father who worked for the police and he would solve mysteries around his neighborhood and often the solutions were really obscure and opaque yeah and and quirky there they that was to me part of the charm of them is that the answers sometimes were absolutely silly.
0: Oh, yeah. there is There was like a series of these books, actually. When I was growing up, I would read all of them. There was also like the Clue uh, books, which were these convoluted um, things where they would describe each character in a different way. You had to figure out the, the one with the boots on, which eventually you eventually determine is Mr. Green or something. It's the reason why I call Kyle Bodie, Kyle Bodie, because the guy gets killed in the Clue books says right. Mr. Bodie. Mr. Bodie. But it's spelled with two D's and it throws me off every single time. But yeah, Encyclopedia Brown, there's one mystery I remember that still bothers me to this day. And I haven't thought about this much, but it's still there from like 10 year old me, which he had one where he knew that someone was lying because they said that they woke up due to the thunder and then looked out the window for the lightning. And thus, because thunder follows lightning as opposed to is in front of it, there's no way that's true. However, when it's a thunderstorm, it's a storm. It's not one of them. You can get, wake up from the first blast mm-hmm. and then there's another one. And like they, they, they handcuffed the guy because of this.
1: Right. When Encyclopedia Brown came up with the solutions to his mysteries, Everybody immediately confessed. No, nobody fought right, back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everybody was immediately brought to justice when and, and some again, some of the answers. There's a wonderful scene in the movie about Schmidt. Alexander Payne is probably my favorite movie director. Hmm. And about Schmidt is one of his greatest movies. And in this movie, Jack Nicholson played very much a non-Jack Nicholson role. He plays a senior citizen. He's kind of a frumpy guy. If you didn't know better, you wouldn't realize it was Jack Nicholson. But he ends up injuring his back. Kathy Bates gives him a bunch of painkillers and he's in bed you know, basically high on these painkillers and he's reading an encyclopedia brown book because he has nothing else to do right and you see him you see him kind of reading the middle of the book and then he skips to the end of the book where the solution is and you see the recognition on his face that he didn't realize what the solution was and he's surprised by what he's reading and i it's just a great that makes alexander Payne great is this this throwaway alex um encyclopedia brown scene in the middle of one of his movies but yeah, one of one of my favorite directors. He also did Sideways. He did Election. Hmm. Um, he just yep. did um, a, a new movie with, with Paul Giamatti called The Holdovers, which is which is almost like a sequel to Sideways because the Giamatti sure. characters are so similar. But yeah. um, Alexander Payne, one of my one of my favorite um, you know working oh, artists great. today.
0: And and here you were, you were uh, in the bus uh, mm-hmm. reading Encyclopedia brand yeah. at that time. What kind of ambitions did you have? Was it like okay, cool, I'm gonna I don't know. I'm going to be an English professor. I'm going to write my own novels. I'm going to play baseball. You know, what was young Scott like there?
1: You know, I played every sport and I, I wasn't a bad athlete, but it it was never on the table that I could even maybe be a college athlete. In fact, I didn't make any of my varsity teams for transfer high in part because our class size was like over 600 per class. And when I was there, they won the Dalton trophy, which is, oh wow. Um, Basically, they were the best public school for sports in Massachusetts for three years running, which, you know, much shout out to to Bob Tobin and Christina Shields and all the great athletes that we had. But uh, Jeff Robinson, Bill Avery, whatever. But I I was not part of that. I was I was a decent. The thing the funny thing about me, Nick, is that uh, I peaked as an athlete, probably age 11 I uh, was the shortstop on my Little League team. I, I got four hits the first game, batting oh, yeah. lower in the lineup. They put me in the third spot. I had a good season, but I didn't hit any home runs, even though I was a, a nice line drive hitter. So mm-hmm. I spent the rest of the summer playing pickup baseball with my friends. We're all trying to hit home runs. I tried to put some launch angle into my swing before right. knew what launch angle was. I got to hit home runs like my buddies rather than just keep the nice line drive swing I had. So I come back for my age 12 little league season, you know, little league is age 10 to 12. So this is supposed to be the year where I I really make it. And the first day of practice, my coach says, I'm going to be the Scott's going to be the team captain. He's going to organize all the cutoffs and he's going to basically be the, the linchpin of the team. Right. And that year we had added a kid named Jimmy Moulton to the team who ostensibly was a shortstop, but I was the incumbent. So he, I basically got to be Derek Jeter. I stayed at short, we moved Moulton the second. It was obvious in ten seconds that Jimmy right. Moulton was a lot better than I was, but they didn't have the heart to move. Oh, that Jimmy shot. Moulton. Yeah, Moulton. So uh, I end up I was better as an eleven year old than a twelve year old, which never happens. I my average went down. I never did hit that elusive home run, and Jimmy Moulton ended up being not only a high school baseball player, but he got a, a college scholarship to Merrimack. And by the time he was. A star in high school. He gets the college scholarship. The local weekly paper wanted to do a feature on him. And by then I was doing some occasional work for the Chelmsford Independent. This was once a week paper. So I got to interview Jimmy Moulton and write an article about he was you know, going to continue his baseball career at Merrimack. And we did not mention, I, I think we even talked to each other. Like we didn't even remember that we played baseball together. Cause I was just too embarrassed to mention it. I uh, happy to say that we've reconnected in the last few years and we follow each other on Twitter and uh, Jimmy Moulton's a good guy, but hmm. um, I, I, should, I feel like I should say this in public. I, I'm sorry, man, you should have been the shortstop. They should have moved me to second. <laughs> you should have batted third. I probably should have hit somewhere else in the lineup. You were the better player on the team. And it, it's, frustrating sometimes where you have to defer to the guy who was here before you but you were obviously better well, than me and i acknowledge that
0: that's that's incredible i will say at least like we all know like the best players on the team play short so even regardless of jimmy mm-hmm. uh the fact that you were still playing short is still very impressive so that that's fantastic and if it makes I was you a feel smart better, yeah i was a
1: smart player i wasn't really talented you know i i was um you know, a decent basketball shooter if nobody was covering me. If you put a hand mm-hmm. in my face, I couldn't do a thing. Right. One time in a youth league game, I got fouled right before the game ended. I, I'm driving the lane, made my couple up fakes. Alan Sunkiss doesn't go for either fake. I finally have to shoot because we're down two points and the clock's about to run out. And Sunkis rejects the shot into the next week. <laughs> but Eric Sawyer saw a foul on the play and he, and he called a foul. And, and, and I think Alan Sunkiss is still pissed about this. <laughs> so I get sent to the free throw line down two with uh, like basically no time left on the clock. And to me, this felt like a reprieve. I knew the shot was legitimately blocked and I had practiced so many free throws. I'm like, oh, free throws an easy shot. You just throw it up there with soft touch and hit it anywhere near the rim, it will fall in. So I made both the free throws. We get crushed in overtime. And the whole time I'm thinking, well, i always remember that I got followed with like one second left. Right. needed to make two feet. They even called the timeout to ice me and everything. My coach looked at me and said, make these. That was his advice to me.
0: Yeah, there you go. And you but, did. He but yeah, so
1: I, you know, that that is symbolic of the type of athlete. I, not that anybody's like, I wonder if Scott Pianowski was a good athlete. Um, I was, you know, smart enough as a. I knew the cutoffs. I I knew the, you know, people are always coaching you in, in Little League. You know, where do you go with the ball if it's hit to you? I, I knew all that stuff, all the instinctual right. stuff. Um, I was a good free throw shooter, stuff like that. Nice. Um, in hockey, I could read the play pretty well. A lot of times I scored a lot of goals, but I couldn't skate very well. And a lot, that's why I, sometimes I didn't make the better teams because I wouldn't look good in, in practice. But then when the game was played, a lot of times I was a pretty good scorer because I could read the flow of the game pretty well. I was, mm-hmm. and, and maybe it's easy. It's convenient for somebody of ordinary athletic gifts to say, oh, of course, I'm one of the smarter players out there. But it does seem to follow with um with what I did. So I played a little bit of everything. I played soccer. Played some hellacious pickup football games outside. Never played fo- organized football, but all that stuff's in the past now. Uh, now I'm just a sports writer. I play golf. Um, I don't think I could play hockey anymore if I wanted to, or, or basketball or stuff like that. That's all in my past. But yeah. I was a smart pit. I was a smart kid growing up. I I knew, I understood patterns. I understood symmetry. I knew, you know stuff like that. I was good at, but um, of limited athletic ability
0: so it's funny is that actually I've been in that same situ- situation of having to hit two free throws with like a second left. Mm, nice. I, um, I play in a rec basketball league now. Um, I don't, I don't play any baseball after college. I was like, no, I'm done because I am not going to train enough to be able to pitch the same way that I used to. Oh, did you play for practice? And, yeah, I played, uh, That's I, great. I walked on sophomore year and then awesome. played through senior year and, I. Uh, I remember actually, like I so distinctly, the last game I pitched, knowing in my head, that, like I'm not going to play any outside ball or anything like that. I'm not going to play in a hardball league, and so I was like, "Well, I, I enjoy sports. So I like play with play football in the park." And then actually, one of my friends through that recruited me for a rec uh, zog league here in Brooklyn, and I remember distinctly we had this rival team through the entire year where we knew we'd be playing them in the playoffs and how they worked in our league was ridiculous, where it was just one night for four teams to determine the champion. You had mm-hmm. these 15-minute games and you had best of three of them. So we actually played, you know it was one versus four, two versus three. We went three games to determine our first playoff, which is exhausting. Uh, and then we play in the finals against a rival team. We get to the third game, because and we're exhausted we replayed i think an overtime at least one of them and it's overtime of this one it's actually now double overtime i cannot like see where i am almost and we're down by two i think with like five seconds left and i do what i normally do which is i you know fake to the right drive to the left and i'm going up and they're just like there's no way we're ever going to let you you know earn this with just a layup like you're going to fail you and the second I got fouled and went to the line, I was like, "Oh, we just lost the game." <laughs> I was like I couldn't. I was I was literally about to faint on the line. Mm. Like I could not even. I was just trying to get enough energy to get the ball close to the hoop at that point. Sure. It was so stupid. Like I, I in retrospect, I'm like, why I shouldn't have done that. I should have just given it to my teammate to try and shoot a three because that's a better opportunity than what I did. Mm-hmm. So I have massive regrets in that situation. I'm happy you have the 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 celebration uh, of hitting those two fouls. Just who cares about overtime? You you had to step up in the moment, and that's exactly what you did. I'm uh, glad that I did. Although, to, again, to be honest, I think what kept me so calm in that
1: moment is feeling like I was given a second chance. Because if mm-hmm. the play were, if Eric Sawyer, Chelmsford High uh, basketball player, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, if he had a better view of the play. He doesn't blow the whistle and sure. we lose the game so i felt like i was given a second chance it was house money and i also want to mention because you work for pitcher list um it started that great site which has done so much to make us fantasy smarter and, and bring people oh, together and it, that much much admiration for that that as i was growing up uh, playing youth baseball i did pitch some i had a very accurate arm but i did not have any significant velocity and i yeah. never had any any breaking stuff i mean you know, Eno St- Saris has this stuff plus metric. I, I'm sure whatever yeah. the lowest grade possible on that would be <laughs> what I would have. If you needed somebody to go and throw something, I'd hit the strike zone. I wouldn't walk guys. Right. But it, it would just be hard, uh, you know, for me to get people out. So the last time I pitched, I think I was 15 years old. I was supposed to pitch one. And I didn't realize it. And I, we used to have these marathon Wiffle ball games in my backyard I'd play Kevin Sullivan the kid who was like two years older than me everybody probably grew up with somebody who was older than them who always beat them but they made you better at it right. we used to play these we play wiffle ball games until our arms would fall off we would mm-hmm. just throw like Nolan Ryan like 300 400 pitch afternoons. Yeah. and of course with a wiffle ball you can make the ball dance and sing and, and do whatever mm-hmm. you want because that's the way the ball designed so we had this Wiffle ball marathon I show up for my town league baseball game I don't realize I'm supposed to pitch. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're pitching tonight. And my arm is falling <laughs> off. It feels like alligators are biting it. Oh, so I'm, I, And I, I'm afraid if I tell them I can't pitch that I'll, you know, they'll take me out of the lineup. They'll get mad at me. Right. So I'm like, I just have to try to gut it out. And I'm warming up and with every pitch. My arm is screaming.
0: So yeah, like, just, just try to get through it. I, I should have told the, the truth, of but of I did. Like, uh, it's when your arm goes up, you can't turn it over. Mm. You know, that's it, it, it's it's hard to describe, I think, because everyone who goes through this who has pitched before is just OK, when you try and throw through your arm. But what is it really? And I remember once in high school going through this where I they just needed someone to pitch that that wasn't going to say no, if you want to do that. Great. Awesome. Um, but as I was coming around on a curveball, like I would have to like shove it like my entire body to push it out and get my shoulder over enough to come down and through it. Uh, it's yeah. It, it's not just like pain. It's physical inability. Um, really is, is the thing like it doesn't, it's like, it hurts, but it's not like a sharp, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's hard to describe it exactly. Uh, but yeah, to be able to throw strikes and be able to like actually go through that. It's really, really difficult.
1: Well, I was thrown that day. I was thrown batting practice and I remember the, I remember the, like the first inning, I think we batted around or we put up a ton of runs, and I'm like, well, maybe I'll get through this. I'll just throw what some version of a quality start and then get out of there. And the last thing I remember is there's a kid on the other team named Michael O'Keefe, who ended up being a, a great player for Chelmsford High. He, I believe he played at Assumption and he's currently the baseball coach at Chelmsford High School. He was also a good basketball player. Michael O'Keefe was a good athlete. And so I'm, I'm pitching this guy O'Keefe, and I, I throw like an inside fastball, and he, and he hits the crap out of it. But it just was a little bit foul, and he's like all mad and everything. And he's basically like a version. He basically had like a Will Clark swing. Yeah. And so, all right, uh, I gotta, I probably just should have walked him, but I, I threw him another pitch over the plate, and he hits this laser between the center field and uh, right field gap, and it go, it rolls into a soccer game. <laughs> okay there's a soccer game in the distance and this ball rolls into it and that's how yeah. far away get it and the umpire holds up two he goes ground rule double and, and O'Keefe could have run them around the bases three times I mean yeah, the, right, the, right. It rolled like 450 feet but uh <laughs> it's a double. And he's looking at me and barking at me and I'm thinking yeah you know I, I think my pitching
0: anyone who, who grew up in Brooklyn knows that's a Prospect Park double um because it's just the meadows there's no fences I yeah, no fences. it took me so long to play In a in a field that had fences. I that was such a moment. Oh my gosh, a fence. Joy and they'd have the dimensions on the fence. She'd be like, Oh my God,
1: I'm this I've I've died and gone to heaven. I'm changed for me, right? Yeah.
0: (laughs) And then I went to the one my my home field in my senior year and maybe my junior too was was far rock away in in New York here, which was three hundred feet all the way around. Mm. So when I tell you I hit one home run in my career, I bet you can guess where it was. Um, right, it was dead center. It didn't. Three hundred feet dead center. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, just, just like the Reggie I, Jackson home run in nineteen seventy-seven to the black seats. There you go. I uh, they uh, they tell me that it was very far over. I thought the center fielder caught it because I just put my head down because I never thought I would ever hit a home run, so I just put my head down and started running. And uh, so yes, yeah, so there you go. Three um, hundred foot fences are still fences, and it's a wonderful thing. And I'm happy they weren't there uh, when you allowed that. Double, I uh, so so I want to talk more about with you. Scott is just about transition from from high school. Let me also college, say I, I apologize college, to everybody
1: who just <laughs> withstood all these inane stories about my child. No, this is they the have, fun they stuff. Have no connection to their life at all. I, mean, I hope hopefully the Encyclopedia Brown and Alexander Payne stuff gave <laughs> you something to to research. But they're, they're not going sure to people... do a thirty for thirty on my athletic life.
0: For <laughs> sure. Well, I, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to your stories, though. You know, most of the people that um i interact with them, have any sort of affinity with the site or
1: mm-hmm.
0: um just know this pod yeah they have very similar stories to yeah, yours, everybody has their own version of that right exactly yeah, and there's yeah, also sure. that moment that that sticks with them from their athletic time too so it doesn't matter how far up you go um there's always some some cool moments like those. i'm happy you were able to share them here um but after the break we're gonna talk about uh, scott's transition into writing and how he got where he is now and we'll go over that after this break so Scott, tell me here, uh, it's high school, you're going off to college. I, uh, When you were choosing where to go, what were you thinking for yourself?
1: I wasn't sure where my career was going to go, where my life was going to go. I, My math SATs were higher than my verbal SATs. Same and here. As I, said, as I said, my, you know, shout out to Mr. and Mrs. Fenton, who were two of my math teachers who were outstanding and thought, well, maybe I should go into math. And Providence gave me a very tiny little bit of financial aid if I would be a math major. So I went to Providence College, fall of 87, right after Rick Patino had left. They'd just gone to the Final Four with a very weak team. And Patino took the Nick job. I went to Providence. I got on campus and realized really soon oh, oh God, this is this real Matt Damon Goodwill hunting math is not for me. <laughs> so I ran away screaming from being a math major within that first semester. At one point I thought maybe econ, yeah, okay, that's math, but it's not the psycho math, right. right? And I don't know, I don't know if maybe I just wasn't mature enough at the time to to fully devote myself to econ. But I talked about doing a little bit of writing. I'd I'd written for the Chelmsford Independent in high school, and actually at that point I'd started to play fantasy baseball. I wrote an article on fantasy baseball. They had a great layout of it. and There's like baseball cards and everything, and I had uh-huh. I, I used all my friends who were in my fantasy league as like the guys I quoted and everything. That was fun. I covered one of the local Legion teams. So that was in my back pocket. And when I got to Providence, which does not have a journalism program, if you wanted to write for the school paper, as long as you showed initiative and you had a little bit of writing ability, they would pretty much hire almost anybody. It's just an activity for free. You didn't get paid or anything. But right. So as I was in college, I made a really great decision to get to know the the beat writer Uh, Kevin Skia was his name who was covering the hockey team. And I I went up to him one day and I think we're in the same dorm and said, oh yeah, I I always see in the press box, do you do do this? Do you do that? And he said, oh yeah, I'm the the beat writer. And we we got to be friends. Um, He was, um, I think he was a stratomatic player or some version of that. Um, I I wasn't as interested in that as he was, but I had played some of that. I later would play some APBA baseball. So we we had a a lot of similar interests, sports stats, whatever. and, And he basically hand, pick, you kind of handpicked me to be the successor. He was a senior. So the next year I got to cover the hockey team as the beat writer. Soon after that, I was covering a lot of college basketball games. And it's great. You know, th- th- it's getting me into press boxes. I'm meeting regular reporters from, from local papers. And that led to opportunities to, to write for a small paper in Woonsocket. And I wrote for, for a while. And once I started doing that, I got offered a job to work for the province Journal. It's kind of like an internship. They didn't call it that so I thought, oh, okay, well, I like sports. I, I like writing. I don't know why I'd never really thought of sports writing as a possible career. I mean, I grew up in New England with this killer Boston Globe sports section, Peter Gammons and Bob Ryan and yeah. Lee Mullenville. And, and before Dan Shaughnessy kind of took the heel turn, he was really good. And Jackie McMullen and Will McDonough, I, I could go on and on. It's, it's widely considered the best sports section of all time. It was an unbelievable thing in the 1980s to the point that when I went to college, Nick, I would go on these hunts in, in Rhode Island to try to find a Boston Sunday Club because it was <laughs> and it's a different time now. newspapers are almost irrelevant now. And certainly oh, the sure. hand, hand in your you, you know, I used to read the newspaper as a kid on the floor, bowl of cereal, cramming box scores, just because I want the information. I, I would do the to.
0: same thing, I would have it splayed out. Um, I actually have a distinct memory. I would be pointing at teams and mm-hmm. saying that, Well, this team sucks. This team sucks. And my mom, like, we're not gonna say that anymore. I'm like, Oh, okay, good. I uh, but yeah, I, I would always be upset that I wouldn't get the West Coast teams. Um well, it's so funny you say that because one so time I was at my,
1: my grandparents' house. Um I, they lived in Winchester, Mass, 15 minutes from Boston, and I stay over one night, and the next day I get the Boston Globe, and the Red Sox had just played like an Anaheim game or something like that. And the there's a story in the paper, and mm. all the box scores are there. And I'm like, How did how did you get this? <laughs> Where did this come from? I thought i had landed on the moon i didn't realize newspapers had different versions of the paper and as you get closer to the city you were more likely to have that that paper that magical paper that had all the boxes i thought that was incredible and that is a foreshadowing of when i started working at the province journal and i saw the ap wire which was basically like being on the internet before the internet where an event would happen and the ap the box score would be available in five minutes or or just when a newsworthy story would happen You could get access to this stuff. Uh, I thought this was incredible. And then like in the early 90s, when a friend of mine got Prodigy, one of the early online services. Oh, yeah. And he said, hey, look at this. And he punches up Chicago White Sox. Uh, Yeah, they scored a run in the first inning. Uh, Frank Thomas hit a single to score Ray Durham. I'm like, oh, my God, how do I get this? I I I, Whatever this is, whatever this costs, I have to get this. I didn't know what this was. So uh, I came into, I went to college, not really sure what I was going to do, maybe something math related that died out quickly. Maybe I'll go into econ that died out. And, and part of that would have just been, you know, I was a kid. I hadn't really grown up yet. You know, I was having fun. Um, but I started going into the school paper thinking, Oh, it'd be cool to be in the press box, watching the hockey games, you go on the road with the team. And I was good enough to attract some attention. And for a local paper that went well enough that the journal wanted me to cover their high school sports. And it'd be one of their guys to do that. So, Uh, And, 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 man, I was treated so well by, you know, people like Bill Reynolds and Kevin McNamara and just some of the people at the Providence Journal, Paul Kenyon and John Galulli, really great guys. I can never thank them enough. Art Martone, who was a mentor of mine and a huge baseball fan. He was a member of the Sons of Sam Horn website and and was at Providence Journal for a while. He died a few years ago. We really miss Artie. But um, I got, you know, a lot of luck, a lot of, you know, I was in the right place at the right time. I went to a school where you know, if I'd gone to Syracuse, could I have outshone all the other hundreds of people you might have had to out you know, beat out to be on the school paper or be in the broadcast? You, know, um, yeah. you have you be so talented to beat out all those people. At Providence, there's a lot of smart people, but people didn't go there for journalism. So if you had an interest in doing it, you, you got opportunities, you got reps. I got a chance to do a lot of bad work that nobody saw as sure. I slowly and slowly got better. And so, a lot of things happened at the same time. I get interested in journalism. I work my way up there. I'm playing fantasy. I'm online early in the early to mid 90s. I get online before most people did. If you called my house back when, you know, after college was done, I moved back home. I get a really slow modem that you call my house. It's always busy because I'm always online. It drove everybody crazy. It drove my, my family absolutely bananas. We eventually get a second phone line, but just to write, right place, right time w- with the school I went to, with fantasy exploding, with the internet, being what the internet was. Not everybody was online in the late 90s, but I I, I beat all that by like five or six years. So again, yeah. this gave me opportunities to do things when nobody was watching. And a lot of the worst work I ever did, thankfully, nobody read. <laughs> and uh, you know, slowly but surely, I got a little better. I started working for some small websites and, and kind of worked my way up.
0: And that's wonderful. Yeah, my dad um got prodigy. And he would spend time in a chat room. That was like a trivia chat room. And I just remember he had like a book of trivia questions next to him. That's to. funny.
1: I used to hang out in a trivia room where you would, right. you, you, you all ask each other questions
0: and exactly. your prize, if person. you
1: got the answer was you get to ask the next question. Right. It's possible. I could have chatted with your father <laughs> in like 1994. It's, it's That's exactly what
0: I'm right. thinking. At 94, 95, he yeah. had a book next. At first I thought he was like cheating with it. And I was like, no, he, he's like, I don't know. I just need to have a question if I win it. Uh and now it's um now of course with me my obsession with keyboards I uh, I'm like oh man dad if you had that keyboard back then you could have won more of these trivia questions because you could have typed faster you know but uh yeah that's it's, why I think it's it was funny you talk trivia. about
1: trivia um in the 80s the game Trivial Pursuit became a huge sensation and mm-hmm. they ultimately came out with um with different card versions there was a sports version there was a, yeah. a baby boomer edition which was mostly like 50s to 70s trivia. I remember at college, uh, there was a kid named Paul Paul Dillon, I think his name was, who had the sports game. And we would play it and and play it for a few bucks and everything. And and I I just knew a lot of sports trivia just from reading and stuff. That stuff has no inherent value. And so one time we made a bet that he he didn't have any more money to bet. So he bet the game. If I had beat him, (laughs) he was going to give me the game. So I ended up winning and he like slammed the board down and like broke it in half. And he's like, here's your game, you know, Um, I... In my memory, I like to think that I gave him his, his board back and I, I felt bad about it, but I, I don't know if that's- Maybe you gave
0: him half of it, you took the other half. For, sh- for sure. But what I used <laughs>
1: to do, like when we had the Baby Boomer edition of the Trivial Pursuit cards, I just used to read them. And I, I actually wrote a piece about this for Yahoo a few years ago. I've always been obsessed with things that happened right around when I was born or when I was young, events that happened that I was around for but not aware of that- like five to six, seven, eight years where you're on the, you're on the earth, but you're not absorbing this stuff. Right. Um, That's always been fascinating to me. You know, and I was born 1969. So like everything that happened that year, the moon landing, the Mets, uh, the the whole scary Manson stuff, Woodstock, that stuff's always been fascinating to me. And then the seventies, you know, Bill Walton, Patty Hearst, Watergate. I've always been fascinated with things like that Mm -hmm. and any, any period piece, that's tied to that. Like the ice storm is set in 1973 or dazed and confused is set in 1976. Um, th- uh, those are movies that I enjoy because I, I have a fascination with that time period.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think about I don't know, the nineties and everything obviously is more of mine. Um, but uh, it is weird. You even mentioned like, I, I consider myself as a kid, completely naive everything that's going on in the world more so than the average camera says oh no Nick everybody's figuring (laughs) I'm no 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 no. you don't understand me of just so much autopilot and in my own little bubble for so long Um, I think it really took me until middle of college if not like right after to really escape it Uh, what's the first historical event
1: that you remember
0: well I mean the the easy answer there is 9-11 like really big one but I'm trying to, you know, I haven't really challenged myself to remember. Uh, I remember Y2K, I guess, that being like a thing that we were all talking about. But I like, you know, then I remember, obviously, Maguire and Sosa doing their thing together and keep going back. Um, uh, And Mercari Strug uh, Mm -hmm. with one leg right yeah she
1: broke her she she broke her fibula or something and there was right performance uh, still right. persevered and
0: won the gold right uh I, I mean i'm trying to really remember like really like whoa this is a big thing in the world outside of just like a sports moment I was remember. there even a first sports team that you
1: felt like for me the 78 red Sox were probably the first sports team that, that i felt it was bad.
0: 95 yankees mm-hmm. um i was actually really into them in 94 my dad had explained to me there was no more baseball they didn't like understand and uh, I have a memory of celebrating at my friend Sasha Hirsch's, where I had a sleepover, and jumping on the pullout couch that Mike Stanley just hit a grand slam. And my Stanley memory, could, Mike that, Stanley could hit. <laughs> I remember it being my memory. Of course, was that it was against the Tigers in, uh, was this? It was Crimea then too, right? I'm really no, the
1: this. tiger stadium lasted until about
0: maybe 97 or 98 okay something like that um 99 maybe. and i tried to even look up this game and i think it was 95 i i don't know i tried to find it and, and not the answer i got i didn't really like <laughs> what i remember but memory is weird um but that's i think that was a year i started to really get into it i remember of course losing to the mariners and being so distraught and uh, and then of course, There's a year you know, before Jeter? One. Right, a Tony Fernandez yeah. was still the shortstop, right? Uh, yeah, of course, I remember that. Seven year old Nick, Randy Velarde, I remember though, remember him. Uh, I think he was a third baseman, possibly. Yeah,
1: he's a, like a good average, low power guy,
0: right? And Jack McDowell,
1: um,
0: I think it was Jack, not Roger. Yeah, Jack McDowell. McDowell. You're right. Yeah, he, okay. he a,
1: one of those guys who want to saw young that would never fly today.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. He had a go. lot of wins with um, the White Sox. But uh, I guess what I'm getting at is like my place in the world really shifted. I think once I, once I really graduated college and actually needed to take it in, you know, I was just on autopilot. So privileged in this way to not really think about a lot of the things that everyone else had to mm-hmm. uh, in so many ways. Also, I mean, I, I went through puberty at like 16. I was, I was easily the last person in my class by far. Like I didn't also throw hard until I was a senior in high school. Yeah because of it you know i was just like i was tall and the skinniest thing you've ever seen in your life late bloomer yeah but a um, lot of times
1: the taller athletes you know develop later i mean they, they say in the nhl the tall defenseman you gotta give them a couple extra years to figure things out
0: tristan mckenzie right for sure uh, but i but i mean i you know of course prenatal uh prefrontal cortex i should say um you know wasn't quite there it just wasn't the whole thing the package wasn't there so when i think about myself in that way i understand the obsession that you're talking about of Hey, I want to really understand what the world was like at that time because I couldn't really absorb it, but I was still a part of it in some fashion. Um, and uh, it's weird; it feels like it was before I was born, almost, even though you know I was there. Uh, I understand like the the culture of someone my age, I guess, but as a world impact, not so much, right?
1: It's also amazing that I mean, your generation grew up—you con- know, the internet was just part of your entire life.
0: Yeah. Oh that was such a that was such a wild west. I mean it still is a bit. There's still there's a lot more you know regulations and there's a lot more of streamlined of where you go. Mm-hmm. But I uh, you know our uh good friend of mine Yancy and many many people know. Um I'm sure actually a friend of yours as well I believe Scott. I mean Yancy's yep, the best. for sure. Yeah He's great. Just guy. Friend of everyone's. Um I love this. He has this question a ton which is what is your experience of the internet? Like when you open up the internet, where do you go? How do you consume it? And I think about that a ton because for me, it's like, cool, I have Gmail, I have my Discord, I have Twitter, I have Reddit, I have uh, a couple other sites that I go and get some things from that are just fun for me, whatever. But it's changed so much through the years. And early 2000s, it was... There are so many random things that we would go to. There was even a plugin called um, stumble upon that was, we had no real good way of finding these cool parts of the internet. Sure. Google existed, but we didn't know what to search for. We didn't have the social media networks now where people are feeding it to us. We had to go and just find a way to discover it or someone would find some random site and we would go there. But Oh cool. This is what we are using now. YouTube didn't start till 2006. You know, it was such a weird time. I, Oh, I mean, do you, uh, how was your experience of the internet back then? Well, it's funny. I, I've always been a big book collector
1: and I had tons of reference books growing up into my twenties, you know, almanacs, um, yearbooks. I loved anything that previewed, you know, um, the sports illustrated baseball preview, basketball preview, um, media guides when i was doing newspaper work and stuff like that and then the internet came around and just totally you know the internet is your reference book and it's so much more efficient and it's so much easier to get from a to z and of course you you end up i play this game sometimes where i'm on the internet doing something watching a video or researching something i'm like how did i get in this topic and i'll backtrack it's so like, oh, well, I started with this, and that I clicked on this, and I clicked on this, and I'm, oh, I have seen that movie. What's that director's about? You know, I, this, this is chain of the, the 13 different clicks. And right. You know, that's, right. that's why when I need to get anything done, I just have to shut that down and go <laughs> one, one window or two windows only, or I just won't get anything done. Yeah, but, um, yeah it, it has changed a lot. And now, and, and, you know, it's changed a lot in good ways and bad ways. You mentioned YouTube doesn't really go back that far, and it's a part of my everyday life. I'm actually right now, and maybe things will get better. I, I almost feel like Twitter is like one step away from just not really existing oh, it's, anymore. It's
0: getting, honestly, I feel like Blue Sky being open now, it really is going to be where people go. I, I I'm started there. to really look into it more. Um, my quick thoughts on Twitter, and it's really, honestly, the worst thing that happened to it is they started to pay people. Because what it does now encourages a different interaction on it. It wasn't just for the sake of Twitter. It's now for more monetary. Of like, cool. I'm going to post not anything about this comment or this tweet. I'm going to now try and make money off of your tweet. It's a really terrible environment. And uh, it's it's, 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 it's gone from.
1: Words. It was my favorite site at one point, unquestionably, and now yeah. it's something where I don't know. I get more frustrated. There's still good interactions. I mean, it's obviously, you know, probably how we connected in, in some vein, and you know, even just to do this podcast, you sent me a direct message on Twitter. Although there's other ways you could have contacted me, and if we don't have each other's phone number, I'm sure we'll exchange it at the end of the day. But, um, I Twitter was my first, you know, my cup of coffee. I don't drink coffee, yeah. but you know, the, I woke up, I want to see what's on Twitter, who's engaging right. in my stuff, what interesting discussions I want to get into, what what is out there that is gonna piqued my interest and, and now I get up and when I look at my mentions okay well there's like seven bots I have to delete or block <laughs> even though that doesn't do anything it's just totally it
0: anything they, it, it's, it's oh my god the number of bots ugh, drives I don't me get it I don't get it why no. can't could they squash that out really easily they can, oh they can but they make money on it
1: yeah
0: you know so that I was going to and no it's no it's um, hard to
1: love something that doesn't love you back even a little bit oh
0: more. This is I mean are you talking about MLB? Are you talking Yes, about that's a, y-
1: yes, anything that applies. <laughs> it's hard to love something back that doesn't, oh, doesn't really love you at all.
0: That was that was so difficult. I mean, I really had this this feeling especially with the lockout um I, I, March 1st, 2022 mm-hmm. uh, or 21 two, 22. It was really difficult because it it just felt like, here I am. All I want is this thing. Let me, let us do this thing. The people who are in charge of it are just, it's unbelievable. They don't need this, you know, and in such control of it over so, millions of people, it really, it, it really was just a, I don't know. I had to look at myself and be like, I hate that I don't have this control in this way. Uh, that my fate is in the hands of someone else in this grand way who do not I don't have faith in. Um, but that was really difficult. Unfortunately, eight days later, it came back. I think it was eight days, and I celebrated here with Bailey Friedman, um, uh, which was so fortunate. It happened the moment that Bailey was here. I, uh, but uh but yeah, that's that's a really tough thing. And Blue Sky, I think, is going to be the one. It has to be.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I think I have an account there, and I've I've done no poking around. But it, it would be nice if somebody would take all the. Good things that like Twitter, the good ideas that it had, and just you know, pushed all the garbage to the you side. Know, and and I, look, I, I get know. it. I you, you the big question everybody's always asked since the internet started is, is how do we make money on this? How do we make a vocation out of this? How do how do we monetize?
0: If that, um that if was something someone, the
1: newspapers didn't yeah. get right. Right. I mean, I I, I, I had sure, to get out of the newspaper right. game because the newspapers basically killed themselves. They were the dinosaurs that you know, became extinct. I, I hate saying that.
0: Well, this is, um, newspapers. this is something that I think is actually, it's both the uh, the fear and the fun for me. Um, I'm very much about, uh, I think one of the joys of Pitcherless for me, ultimately, is it allows me to explore and be creative and uh, have ideas and apply them. And if it were just kind of one method, it was just like, well, this is just what you do, then it, it's kind of lackluster. Right. It's just, okay, cool. I just do that thing. I don't really get creative freedom. I don't get opportunity to discover and have that dopamine hit of like an idea and implying it. Right. Or, uh, and it's, I've seen it through the age of digital business thrive. Right. The, uh, the idea of a content creator wasn't really a thing in 2014. YouTube didn't have monetization yet, uh, you didn't have Patreon at the time. You didn't have all these outlets. You did, getting podcast advertising was such a hassle. You'll read like all these old blog posts about these guys. But, oh, yeah, cool. I just, I charge this and that. I'm like, how am I supposed to find this person and do this? It's just so difficult to do. And podcasting wasn't nearly as big as it is now. And I've seen over these 10 years how we've shifted away from that kind of writing about that. What is the worth of a blog post? what is the worth of a podcast or a video or what is social engagement and so on and so forth and to be able to adapt with it um has been a challenge Uh, i still see a lot of the things that we do that we need to do far better um and uh, even now i'm thinking in my head uh yeah there's someone listening to this who wants to be hired by me just a small part-time freelance thing to just make blue sky as good as possible that is like you know work with us to get all of our staff there and doing all the things inside of it honestly i probably would do that right and i think the entire fantasy baseball community would be happy because the only reason i'm on twitter right now is because i get to interact with you scott I, I know that everyone is there i can dm them and i know that i'm going to get my fantasy baseball discussions and and just baseball as a whole still lives inside of twitter right it's not right. instagram it's not um blue sky it's it's twitter so there's going to be some tipping point. It is it is not like a oh maybe maybe not. No, it's inevitable. The only thing that would stop is if Elon sells it. That's mm-hmm. literally the only thing at this point. Right. And uh he recognizes I mean it, it what he's doing necessarily isn't bad for as a business per se in the idea of trying to make money uh and like I'll put it this way the the audience he's going for to extract money from from is probably more profitable than the doing nothing across everyone. However, it's not really creating a product that is for everyone anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, obviously he's lost so much in in revenue since he bought it and all that kind of stuff. I can have a much longer podcast about that another time. Uh, I'm going to change the topic uh, for a moment, and I'm going to I want to talk more about just what kind of secret passions you have and what hobbies you have that we might not know about. And I want to hear that maybe from like music from your favorite TV show, book or movie or other things that you might be doing weekly that we might not know about. We're going to talk about that after this break. So we're back with Scott Pianowski and Scott. All right. This is your moment. Tell us a thing that you do that we had no idea that you did.
1: Well, I don't really do it anymore. Uh, Some people do know about this, but from about the late nineties, to about 2014 i was a pretty hardcore tournament scrabble player is that right yeah um i was on the Scrabble circuit i was was pretty good i was probably to use baseball analogy i was probably like the Derek lowe of tournament scrabble oh that's legit
0: good i was legitimate i was legitimate i've actually
1: had believe it or not i've actually had three different scrabble plays that are published in scrabble books
0: no Um, way as unlike the only ones or just like such a massive point total
1: Uh, One play, uh, uh, Joel Wapnick, Canadian player, um, one of the most decorated players in the world. He was writing a book on strategy, and he was looking for plays to include. And I think he only used a a small number of plays that didn't involve games he had been in. And there was a particular game. I was playing a friend of mine named Jeff Fishbane. The word ref was on the board. I had a collection of tiles. I actually had two blanks, and there were a lot of really easy – the whole idea of Scrabble, or most of it anyway – is to score bingos to get use your whole racket a 50 point bonus that is a major part of the game it's not all of it and the best scrabble players by the way are very people think it's going to be the librarians and the writers it's really the problem solvers it's the linear people it's the computer guys it's also people who are willing to kind of maybe throw away their social life to be a great scrabble player which i did to some degree well i don't know anyway refs on the board i have a bunch of playable bingos because I have two blanks, I had one blank the previous turn. I had to get rid of the J. I draw the second blank, which isn't—you don't really want to draw them at the same time, but whatever. What am I going to do? Well, I can make this play for fifty-eight points, or this play for seventy points. But I, for some reason, this word found me. I don't know how, but I saw that I could play through ref. I could play anti in front of it and ORM behind it. I played the word anti reform, which I wasn't even sure was acceptable, but I thought it probably was. Played it. My opponent, uh, Jeff Fishman, very good Michigan player, accepted it. Turns out the play is acceptable, and so Joe Wapnick thought it was an example of great, fan, uh, great Scrabble play. So he That's put it awesome. in his book. Yes, yeah, Scrabble. Again, I talked about being linear. I really enjoyed the strategy of the game. I've I've been a lifelong poker buff. I, I still do play a lot of poker, and Scrabble has poker in it. It has inferences in it. Spatial things. Um, I've always been fascinated with spatial patterns and stuff like that. There's mm-hmm. a lot of pattern recognition in Scrabble, so it was something I was really into, and I got I got pretty good. I was never. I want to make this clear. I was never like going to be the best player in the world or the Derek best Lowe. Player. Yeah, I was Derek Lowe. I was Derek Lowe. I was Derek Lowe. Derek Lowe had a nice career. You know, went to a couple All Star games. Probably got down ballot MVP consideration or Cy Young, not MVP, but you know Cy Young consideration. Was versatile. He could start. He could relieve. Had a good career. We'll, we'll never get into the hall of fame and i'll you know if there's a scrabble hall of fame i'm never getting in it but i was pretty good and i still am friends with a lot of people in that community it, I, I have a map in my office of um these little pins that i put in when i played scrabble all the places i played it because for mm. a while it was my most important thing it was even more than fantasy at one point scrabble was really my passion
0: oh man and, that's so uh, cool
1: yeah so there's that i play a lot of poker I play a lot of golf these days. Had a hole in one last year, which was really fun. Oh, is that right? Get to play Bethpage Black, which is one of uh, one of the greatest courses in America, and that's been a way to connect with people I grew up with. It, it has helped me make new friends in Michigan because I, I moved here really knowing almost nobody. Early two thousands, um, one of my best friends from Scrabble, this guy named David Pearl. We we see each other a lot and we'll play golf. So, and I love again the golf's a thinking game. It's, there's a lot of geometry in it, which is, sure. is is the same way. So I, that's a passion of mine. Love music, love film, um, love reading. Um, those, those are some of the things that it, whenever I need to push out an article on a tight deadline, I got to get the right music in my head, get in the right mental space. So um, you know, give me some music. Give me uh, some good movies. Yeah. Maybe, maybe give me some caffeine. Uh, give me a round of golf. Uh, I may come back to Scrabble someday. I, I still <laughs> hang around with a lot of my Scrabble friends. And there are some, you'd be surprised how political the Scrabble scene is. And there was a the big war about what dictionary are we going to use? And there's oh, a lot of condescension. Right. Letter words on, and, are and,
0: accepted. Yeah.
1: And so yeah there's a, a, Scrabble got into a weird place. Um, and to anybody who's curious about this, Stefan Fotsis, a great sports writer for uh, he didn't work for Slate. He worked for the Wall Street Journal for forever. He wrote a book called Word Freak about the tournament Scrabble scene that came out in the early 2000s. And then there was a documentary, shortly done after that, by Eric Chaikin called Word Wars. Uh, they're both highly recommended. Hmm. And I, I have I this is this isn't a me thing. I have a tiny tiny mention in word freak, but I'm, I'm not a character in the book. Oh, and actually, so cool. if, if you know what I look like, you might see me in the documentary, but it's not really about <laughs> me at all. Cause again, I was, you know,
0: yeah right I wasn't Lowe. Pedro Martinez. I was Derek Lowe. It's important <laughs> to make that distinction, but but Derek Lowe won game seven. He did. Okay? Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Oh, I remember being so frustrated watching that game. I uh, so much. So, okay. So much to unpack here. So first and foremost, golf never played a set of nine holes or anything like okay. that. Um, actually with the, the pitch staff in Arizona, we all arrive the first pitch Arizona, which I hope you, you can make. Uh, we'd love to see you there, um, this this upcoming year. I know much it's football; much is kind it's of it's weird. hard to
1: do it during football, but yeah. Look, obviously, anybody who is in fantasy is indebted to Ron Chandler. I can't wait to read his book. He was one of my when I still had the Yahoo Fantasy Baseball podcast. He's one of the best guests. We had some amazing guests, but the talk we had with Ron was fabulous and. I just I I'm occasionally on the HQ podcast with Patrick David, who's just terrific, and Mm -hmm. just all all the people over there. Yeah, they're they're absolutely wonderful. HQ, you guys share so much DNA with with that site because you're all about getting smarter, and you're you're all there's just so many different voices that are interesting to. It's touching to to hear you say
0: that. They've they've really been so kind, uh, and they've really embraced us a ton. Uh, really, Baseball HQ has just been wonderful, um, and yeah, that that conference is incredible and so a lot of our staff goes to that conference kind of a way for us to see each other because we're all in different places you know we're all remote and uh the day of the conference i think it starts on uh, thursday so around noon we all went to Top Golf, mm-hmm. and i'd never done this before like i actually don't think i'd been to a driving range before uh, i'd always seen it but i you know in new york city i don't really want to go to chelsea piers or something like that and Now my friends are into golf, so I just never did. I played some mini golf or whatever. That's it. So literally, I have a video of me taking my first swing. And I'm like, okay, I know like general athletic things. Mm -hmm. I play basketball a ton. I would coach about, you know, I I hit a home run in high school, okay? I can hit if I give me a second. It's all always though, like the top half and never the bottom half. (laughs) Even though with pitching, I understand what I'm supposed to do with that. It was still like more so than my top half. I had terrible mechanics. And So you see a video of the first one and I'm like, all right, I'm trying to do this. I'm like, "Yeah, this isn't so good. And there's a video of the end because I'm like actually like trying to get like, no, I want to be able to hit this well by the end. And it's much better. It actually is a decent swing. My bottom half still needs to do more work. But at least now I I go out, I bent over properly. I have a nice mini squat going. You know, arms are extended all Mm -hmm. the way through. I get it. I understand why people like this game. It is also so absurdly frustrating, and how could you ever put yourself through this? I don't know, but congrats! It's, it's all those.
1: It's all those things, and also, no matter <laughs> what level of golf anybody played, and I'm I'm okay at golf. I'm uh, I'm probably was a little bit better at Scrabble than I'll ever be at golf, but you know, I can shoot in the 80s sometimes. But even people who are new to the sport, you know, um, they they haven't maybe developed their golf skills yet. They still know the feeling that every once in a while you hit a ball pure. Yeah. And you really don't even hear the contact That's and it the makes the right sound is, and it has this trajectory. It, it takes off like a plane and it's an unbelievable feeling.
0: That's what a barrel is. That's it. Exactly. That's the there feeling. you go. There you go. <laughs> sweet spot, right? Yeah. You didn't know what a barrel feels like. It's that. It's so great. Cause yeah. you don't even like feel the feel of reverberation. It's just, you're going yeah. all the way through and it's just, it's so nice. Oh, It's beautiful. I, uh, the other part is I actually played a ton of Scrabble growing up with my mom and my grandmother. It was me, uh, me and my mom. Especially with my grandmother. Um, I didn't really have the best relationship with my grandma. Very few people did. Uh, so the way that I could actually interact and get through a visiting time with her it was to play Scrabble. And uh I remember at first it was very much like I wanted to play the two letter words. I knew the good ones. Mm-hmm. And she wouldn't let Big me part of it. You know, she would not be in on this. Like I'm making up things, I'm whatever. I'm like, oh using it in a sentence like oh i don't know i guess it'll be like this. i just know the two-letter word it works you know mm-hmm. right i w- instead of using the scrabble dictionary I had to use her a uh, woven red leathered one from 1956 or something like that dictionary you know awesome. like okay it does not have za in there or whatever yeah sure. uh, or ti um is ti one of them it is right? it is it's
1: on the musical skill yeah
0: oh right absolutely um uh, t yeah of course not tea I uh, I then got her to get to a point of, hey, let's not compete against each other. Let's just mm. both try and get high scores. There you let's go. just try and do that. Um, but when my mom on the beach, uh, we actually have like beach sets because I would play Scrabble with my mom a ton. Um, and I, there is like this anxiety I certainly get of playing Scrabble. Like I've, I've been on a date or two where they want to play Scrabble on it and I just can't there's no way this works out. <laughs> in my head it's either like okay is this a proper scrabble game and then they make boat or something and i go okay well all right i uh, so let's this is not that kind of game this is just whatever casual scrabble which it doesn't feel like right scrabble to me mm-hmm. and then if it actually is a competitive thing then i'm going to be so anxious and i will not be able to make a good enough word with what i have and then i'll want to pass more than i have to and then it's just this is not the experience i want to have so it's hard to find a good Scrabble partner. And I imagine you actually feel that way when you're not playing in the competitive scene, where it's just like you can't play Scrabble with people because it's either like, well, I'm just going to destroy this and it's not going to be fun for them. Yeah, what
1: What happened is once I got into tournament play, my mom and I used to play a lot. And once I became a tournament player, I I, I was probably beating my mom maybe three out of four times. And then once I started playing tournaments, I pretty much won every time. Right. And so the games became like kind of what you described, it became more collaborative and yeah. less competitive and more about let's enjoy the time. And it, it's not about the winning and the losing. Yeah. And, right. And that's kind of, you know, I'm a journey over destination guy anyway, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's funny because at one point in my life, I would say I was Uber competitive. I still have competition juices flowing in me. And, you know, if, if I play golf with my buddies, we'll, we'll, we'll play for a few bucks. Nothing, nothing crazy. Right. Um, you know, and my my and I mentioned playing poker, my rambling gambling days are long in the past. um and that's why one thing my fantasy was so good for me because it gave me a way a competitive outlet that didn't bring financial risk into play, right and I the, actually... Um, had- I'm kind of scary to think if I was a kid during today's with, you know being bombarded with all these sports books and all these come-ons and everything. It's I don't think that would have been good for me when I was 18 no. or 22 and I had no sense of how to handle
0: a budget. It's actually, like it's why uh, we don't have, we don't do any sort of DFS promotions mm-hmm. or uh, associate anymore. We that. do have um, PL Pro, which technically does have like DraftKings and FanDuel things in it. actually i've been wrestling with this this is not a confirmation this is just a thought that i've been having but it might be ultimately where we go is we are building out a larger product that's going to include this stuff and we're thinking about maybe having sports betting in it but i also don't want to have like someone who gets it for fantasy stuff and then all of a sudden gets seduced by that side Mm -hmm. right i'm I'm honestly thinking you know what what if we just have this product and then if you want to get actual things for those things you have to spend another amount as like the the gate like if you're really into this this is really good this is great fine but i don't want people just casually to get into this because it can be such a vice. it can be such an easy thing to fall into and you know i do want to provide it to people who do it responsibly and that's fine for sure I, i think about like for scrabble when i was on the tournament circuit eventually my
1: when I first got into it, it was like, okay, what's my rating? Can I move up a division? Yeah, can right. You know, how good can I be? And in the second half of my Scrabble quote unquote career, I, again, there's still competition in me. I wanted to do well. But the tournaments I chose were what city do I want to visit? You know, who's mm. going to that tournament? Where would I like to go out to eat after yeah, the game? Sure. Can we go to a ball game? Right. You know, stuff like That's that. Great. So, it became more about the experience and about, and that's you know, I know that's, you like to talk about what people's what was their ethos or their mantra. Yeah, and I think life's about it's about relationships and experiences and just what everything else is trivia.
0: Well, there you go. There's there's Scupinowski's mantra. It's about the experiences and the moments and the people and not the for sure not the accolades. Um, and I think that's actually a really important distinction that I made. Uh, in in my competitiveness where i was oh my gosh me as a kid i sucked i i I hated myself when it came to competing me too because it's all that mattered i needed to win it was and it wasn't about the journey it was about the destination of being the one that was you know on top and better right and i remember you know i had an older sister who was very competitive with me my parents certainly instilled this sense of competition of like Uh, I don't know. I I would often feel judged if it wasn't a certain way or something. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, they had these high expectations. And then my, uh, my, my best friends, my, uh, my good friend who was only other real athletic uh, kid in the grade with me was obsessed with sports and he was just the most competitive had to win ever. His dad was your typical, like coach of my team and everything like that. You know, it was him. He had to win at every, you know, at, at all costs. Then my other set of friends were twins (laughs) and they were absurdly competitive with each other. And then my other friend was uh, the younger brother of a brilliant guy, Um, just the smartest in the school, essentially. And it's like all of us together as friends. I mean, are you kidding? Every single moment was just the most competitive thing ever. So when I went off to college, um, I started to recognize how that was impacting a lot of the relationships I had with people where they were not in that same culture. Mm-hmm. This was the culture I just knew and I had to be in. Also, keep in mind, like I was playing baseball in high school where I was the youngest often in the, in um, my team. My friend would play the varsity. I would play in the varsity B or something. And like I always needed to showcase that I was worth it, right? And it was less about my own accolades. It was about You're me trying to prove yourself, them, sure, right? I get it. So, going to college and realizing like the friends I had were not into sports and they didn't really have these same attachments to games and everything that I did, it was, I was recognizing how I was more and how like that wasn't accepted. Um, you know, the, I wasn't being the personality I wanted to be. And I realized that being competitive, there's something I enjoy so much about it that was being lost, which is I love being challenged. And in a challenge in a way that I can go as hard as I can at something to see if I'm capable of it, which is really fun and rewarding internally of saying, okay, I think that you know, this is a puzzle. I want to be able to figure this out because this is, there is an answer and I want to see if I can you know, observe everything and deduce it and logically get to that conclusion. Cause that's a fun challenge. If I'm playing a board game or so I'm trying to I, cool. I get to come up with a game plan and tactics and see if I can have the wit and and be clever enough to come out ahead at the end right that's the fun now and when it becomes not that part of the challenge of myself and seeing what I'm capable of it's more of emotionally exterior like socially to the person that's when it's the problem and being able to differ between it um, whether it's about social standing versus my own eager uh or competition internally my own challenge then that's where i was able to actually understand what is good competitiveness and what is bad and i think a lot of um a lot of champions will actually say this internally about like it's about their own self a lot and less so of just socially i mean there's probably an unhealthy mix in there too but when you realize that like good competitiveness is about your own um achievements then you'll actually be able to sort much further cuz a lot of people will just be content they'll be able to be like okay cool i'm ahead of this so i'm just going to whatever um, this is a lot to unpack
1: gonna... from that nick it's a, you know at the end of the day for me this this has been a long journey to get to this point where I'm, I'm just trying to be the best version of me I can be, and I know that yeah. sounds kind of trite and contrived, no, maybe great. to some extent. But I, I want to be people I work with. I want to be a good teammate. The people I'm friends with. I want to. I want to be a good friend. I want to be some. I'm gonna be a good listener. I think at one point in my life I was a horrible listener, and it's been a process. And competitiveness just doesn't talk about sports or or, or Scrabble or you know whatever poker whatever. I used to have a social competitiveness. I used to have to be right and yeah. be really passionate with arguments and debates. And I used to really enjoy kind of going at it with somebody that way. Not, not in a, you know, we wouldn't be throwing fists at each other, but um, I, I used to have a social competitiveness and, and the need to be right and to prove that I'm smart and all that, that thankfully I, I think is largely flushed out of my body now because I just I realized at one point I don't enjoy this. I don't know. I do not enjoy this. I don't think this makes me enjoyable to be around. And I had kind of a moment where I I had to reevaluate all that. And I also started to think about who do I have the best conversations with? It's the people who are patient and let me talk. And then, you know, when I kind of hand the baton back to them, they have the freedom to say what they want to say. And it's not the person talking the loudest or the person interjecting the most is the person who gets heard. Every once in a while, I'll have to be in a conference call and maybe there'll be somebody on that call who has that Every time I have something I want to say, I'll just start saying it. It drives me crazy, yeah. Because I feel like it just takes away from the collaborative flow of what that conversation can be. You no, know, Grant. Sometimes you just have too many people together, and it's maybe not constructive. I really do like smaller groups. I've always been like that. I consider myself a bit of an extroverted introvert. But <laughs> at the end of the day, how can I be the best version of me? And I'll and I'll go to the driving range, and I want to work on my my pitching wedge. I want to work on my hybrid or whatever. And I'm I'm just sitting there practicing and nobody's watching. Nobody's keeping score. Nobody cares how well or how poorly I'm hitting the ball. I, I may share some of this data or facts with my friends because we're all on the same journey trying to find those same things. But, you know, I have a relationship with my golf coach. I have a relationship with the people I play golf with, the people I grew up with, people I have friendships I've made here. And we can all, you don't have to win or lose. You can all just, we're all just trying to be the best version we can be. You support each other. I just feel like look, I, I'm not going to say I have all the answers. I just understand my own wiring much better today than I used to be. And I've learned how to be in, you know, when I'm playing golf, I'm competing against myself. Yeah. I, may, I might have a $5 match with my friend, whatever, but if he wins, I'm not going to feel lousy about it. And if he plays great, I'm happy for him or her, um, Right. you know, actually the, the first person in my orbit to get a hole in one, by the way, was my sister-in-law, Karen. So, so shout out nice. to her if she's listening, but I learned, and, and also you talked about dates, right? You're competing with somebody on a date. Yeah, no, you know, a I lot. Either. A lot of times, the, the best thing I could do with people I'd be involved with emotionally, like that, or, or in romantically, maybe, is how can we compete collaboratively? Can we do right. something together? You know, can we do right. a trivia night together? And, and it, or maybe we're not competitive at all. Some of my best friends don't have the competitiveness, but I needed to find out. What I ultimately found out, Nick, is I'd rather rather win a debate with somebody over, Oh, this author is better than that author. or This picture is better than that picture. or This director is better than that director or music, whatever. I'd rather speak collaboratively or get to know what, you know, that I don't know and share experiences and, and find new things to look into and, and all that. And, and hear what the other person has to say that I don't know about, or even just if somebody's passionate about something, I don't have to know anything about it and it can still be interesting. I don't know a lot right. about cooking, but if somebody was passionate about, you know, whatever, with the entrees they make or, or the Super Bowl party they threw or whatever. And they want to talk about all the stuff they cooked. I, I In fact, I love watching people cook, watching a really good, you know, this is one restaurant I go to, it's almost like a diner and you can see all the food being prepared. And, and the guys mm. are so skilled as they're flipping everything in the pan and everything. I, I find it relaxing and intoxicating to watch that. So, uh, you know, it, it took a while for me to realize that what I thought I really enjoyed, this, this high-powered competitiveness, debate, all that stuff. It really wasn't what I was looking for.
0: Oh, man. Oh, that's so wonderful. Um, yeah, there's a reason why everyone loves what they do, right? Like it's, it's strange at times why we like what we like. It's just kind of what it is at times. But with every sort of hobby, um, all of culture, everything, there's, there are elements of it that are enjoyable, and that's why they exist. And just because I'm not necessarily into something, hearing someone else talk about why they like something is always going to be fun because you'll get to at least for a moment vicariously live that experience of joy with that thing you didn't before, which is incredibly fun. Um, You've been also very gracious today uh, for giving me so much of your time, Scott. There is one last question. I know I asked the mantra one before. But I wanted to know this. I know I'm sure we could probably talk an hour about it. Who or what is the best band?
1: Oh man, that's
0: I know an unanswerable question.
1: <laughs> my my favorite band has always fluctuated for like a ten year period. It was REM for a, a period. It was probably Block Party for a period. It was probably Radiohead. I got a chance to see the band Belly, which is fronted by Tanya Donnelly. I've liked every band Tanya Donnelly has been in. She was in Throwing Muses. She was in Belly, which I I love um, poppy, alternative, twangy music. And that's basically what Belly is. Tanya Donnelly has a lot of great solo music. In fact, I I used to – Nick, let me me tell the story. It's a a favorite story of mine. My father – um who sadly we, we lost a couple of years ago he was 79 had a full life was an amazing nicest person i ever met and i'm not saying that because he's my dad i, I wish i were 20 percent as nice as he was but he even though we didn't have quite the same taste in music sometimes i would try to expose him to a song i liked or a band i liked and he would always listen open-mindedly so i would make him every once in a while i'd make him like a cd back when cds were a thing and he could pop yeah. it into his car and listen to it so i made him a cd once of like 20 songs sent it to my dad. He played it. I think he said, oh yeah, I really enjoyed that CD. We never talked about it any deeper than that. And one of the songs on that CD was a song called Thief, which is a belly song, Tanya Donnelly on lead vocal. I go to see him many years later, and I believe it was the last year um, of his life. We're in a car together. I said, hey dad, I want to play a song for you. And I I didn't tell him anything else. And I played him a Tanya Donnelly solo song. And about five seconds into the song, he said, this sounds like Belly, which is Tanya Donnelly's band. So it basically was Belly. Yeah. And um, I, I just thought, you know, I love that my dad, who is not of this era with music, would care enough to listen to the stuff I wanted him to listen to. I, I just want him to experience it once, you know. If he liked it or didn't like it, that's okay. It doesn't matter. But he could recognize that. I don't know. It I just gives me um, a fuzzy to think about it. In fact, before I saw Belly in October tanya donnelly was engaging some people i think on threads is we're all looking for ways to transition away from well how can i find the good part of twitter on somewhere <laughs> yeah. else because Twitter's kind of going down the drain very sadly and and i told the story on one uh, on this thread that tanya donnelly um opened about what songs you want to hear and I, and I mentioned the story about my dad i'm not sure if she ever responded to it i hope she read it because I, d- I just wanted to share it with her i, I don't mm-hmm. need her to interact with me uh, with that, um, I just like the fact that she might know it. I've told that story to a couple of other people who I talk about music with. But man, there's just you know, some days I want to listen to The Pretenders, and some days I want to listen to The Sex Pistols, and some days I want to listen to The Foo Fighters. Um, I mentioned Block Party. I, I was just listening to Block Party last night, one of my very favorite bands. Um, the collection of music The Rolling Stones have is, is ridiculous. You know, in high school, we were asked to do a five-page term paper senior year and i wrote 25 pages on the beatles now as somebody who's done writing
0: and editing i was so worried that you didn't mention the beatles there but you were bring about this yeah well i
1: now i think back and like 25 pages on a five-page assignment they should have failed me on the spot because (laughs) i learned how to edit my friend and i joked that the professor professor was a teacher in high school i professed that she probably gave me an a on this project she didn't want to read it not to mention it was i think it was actually handwritten but (laughs) we <laughs> um, can talk about my fascination of things, history that predated me, but was still kind of close to my right. time. Fascinated with the Beatles, fascinated with uh, one of my dogs is named Abby, who's named after Abby Road, A-B-B-E-Y. Um, I, I could talk about, we could do a Beatles podcast. Uh, oh, so my, music, my musical taste, and I'm, I'm not saying, people love to say, oh, my musical taste is eclectic, but I like, I, I have different songs for different moods my some, day, some days it's Fleetwood Mac some days it's the Beatles some days it's um you know it's, it's a lot of days it's Tanya Donnelly some days it's um you know
0: well I'm gonna listen to Thief now um by Belly I I'm not familiar whatsoever um and I will certainly check it out please uh,
1: do and also if you don't know Block Party at all their silent alarm album has three songs mm-hmm. that mean the world to me um like eating glasses a song I play a lot of times if I need some energy in the morning It's actually about an awkward, hard breakup, but it's a very, it's a kind of an energy song. This modern love is a. It's. I think it's much easier to write a depressing or a breakup or a stressful song because I think emotional pain is an unbelievable muse. I think it's harder to actually write about happiness, and this modern love is a very, very happy song. And then they have a song called "So Here We Are," which is kind of a, a romance that is in the middle somewhere, where is this working out? Is this not working out? Who do you want me to be? Who do I want to be for you? It's, it's actually a fairly simple song, lyrically. There aren't that many different words to it, but it always kind of gets under my skin and gets me in a mood, a good mood, a pensive mood. It, it kind of gets the gears flowing. So if anybody out there isn't familiar with Block Party, the Silent Alarm album, specifically those three songs, I would highly recommend.
0: There you go. I uh, So actually, I don't know if you play any music. Um, I don't. I thought it was I, I was going to play, I, I, I thought I was going to be a guitarist forever mm-hmm. at one point in my life, um, which, uh, if anyone's been listening to this podcast, I've certainly talked about that a ton. But what you mentioned there about sad songs versus happy songs. Um, so, what's interesting to me is anytime I would have to write a happy one, I couldn't really dabble with anything but like major th- sounds. Um, and actually, I feel like that's very akin to the emotion. When you're happy, it's very different. Uh, then when you're sad in the sense of you don't really dabble with sad at all. It's just pure happy and you're only there. When you're sad or you're feeling not happy, essentially, it's a mix often. There are highs, but the lows overwhelm those highs. Uh, and it's not really like you are you have the highs and then you just you have the lows too. It's like, no, you're just only high when you're, when it's, when you're happy. So when you're writing a happy song, and if you were to really dive into like a minor bridge even or have minor elements it would not be a happy song anymore it would be kind of a contorted one um, in a sad song you would actually probably have these brief moments for dynamic uh, to, to be like this is a happy section maybe but then it's really the story is about like you're reaching for that and then you're coming back down to the sad mm-hmm. so I can understand the you know, how much easier it is to write that sadder song because you're able to do more you have more flexibility with it also happy songs sound generic they Mm -hmm. sound like they're not interesting you know it's just not nearly as fun and and you can't really explore as much because you're much more um, constrained with what you can do any sort of dissonance nope not happy anymore and dissonance can come in so many different ways uh but in happy if it's happy song it's gotta be like no it's gotta be the major sixth the major third get get out of here uh Uh, even so so um, much so much
1: unbelievable work has come from emotional strife you take the great fleetwood mac album rumors which there's two major relationships in the band that are dissolving and they're barely coexisting but it fuels this unbelievable record the great who album who's next was a project that was supposed to be called lifehouse pete townsend has a emotional breakdown they have to scrap it out of the wreckage of that project comes who's next one of those albums that's a to z you can play every song right and even even I, I mentioned this modern love which is a lovely love song but there's a lot of talk about unhappiness in that song and ultimately it ends up in a good place but it, it's it's a meandering song about how do i connect with this person and and can i expose the sadness in me to this person and can they accept that it's it's, it's just a yeah. fantastic please uh, please play block party if you don't know them but
0: um, i will uh live at Leeds, by the way is so good one of the all time doug ferrars yeah. mentions that he it's loves that so album. The who was the oh first man i ever loved by the way my, uh, oh yeah uh and my dad got me that record uh when i was so like good. 15 or 16 i was like yeah this is so good um but um the one Beatles story i have to say because it's just the most mind-blowing thing to me mm-hmm. i read here there and everywhere sure um, uh, great paul mccartney um it's it's so good uh it's jeff uh i want to say it's jeff erickson it's not it's emerson um but it has a story about yellow submarine in it um and it, there are many fantastic stories in there about how these songs came to be and as someone who just the beatles are the greatest band of all time anyone says otherwise i'm just sorry you're wrong um it's just what it is and the breadth of their uh, of their volume of just so many incredible, certainly the most important band of all time yes. there's,
1: there's no denying that
0: um and sure, you can say like they're you know more expansive, incredible songs other people have written. Absolutely, it's just the number of melodic hooks and brilliant songs. It's just too much, and in that time period too, just so quick, it's so quick, right?
1: it's such a sight. Um, not even a decade.
0: Yeah, um, but many. I there's one that just still still is incredible to me is in Yellow Submarine. Um, they the there's this very iconic moment where it's. They say, okay, and the band begins to play. And everybody here can can hear in their head that... Right? Messed up just slightly, but whatever. That part is them going into the attic of the studio and seeing these old tucked away classical bits that they had for this random studio. And they just played some to see if they had anything that would fit. It was the second one. It was this, it just happened to be in the right key and exactly the right pattern that would descend in this way. And they just stuck it on. And that's, they just literally just pulled it off the wall. Uh, It was that, oh gosh, there's so much um, serendipity about the Beatles to me. That's just this. Pure magic.
1: I'm also fascinated by the genesis of anything, of anything great. How does it come about and things that happen intentionally, things that happen by accident? What songs were written by Paul and John and what songs were more collaborative. And -hmm. also to have George Harrison on basically on on a pitch count. George Harrison's so brilliant. And in fact, I think my favorite Beatles song
0: might be Here Comes the Sun. Uh, oh, I mean, Paul
1: well, Frank Sinatra said he thought something was the most romantic song ever written. Something is
0: the greatest song. Yeah, yeah it's it's every, the, ever, since the first note, everything else that follows is the correct thing. To so me. good. So, but I mean, your third starter is is George yeah. Harrison,
1: <laughs> who's going to get one or two songs an album, and and that's how uh, amazing that that Paul and John were, and of course Ringo's the perfect drummer, amazing yeah. drummer who fits in with those guys. It's so um, good. I, I love the genesis of anything and and how things come about, and also I also wonder as you were talking. I wonder if yellow submarine was really a, a historical precursor to Brad Ziegler closing for the Okinaws.
0: No. <laughs> oh no, it wasn't. But uh
1: No, it wasn't. I, I gotta say though, man, I have so much respect for you loving the Beatles as you do, even though they weren't of your time. I, I was the same way where it's like, you know, Led Zeppelin's whole career was over before I had time to, to judge it. Obviously, the Beatles predated me, the Who pretty much predated me for the best of their work. And I just wanted to dig into all this stuff. And, you know, the internet wasn't around then I'd go to the library and get old rolling stones on microfilm and microfiche mm-hmm. and, and read the books that, you know, I read a great book by Dave Marsh on the who before I get old, which was fa- fabulous. I've read a bunch of Beatles books. Um, the love you make was the, probably the best one I read, but I have a, a library of Beatles stuff that I've read. Yeah. The most all right. interesting I'm, band. Of I'm all sure you've
0: read here, there and everywhere. Though. I probably have, but oh, um, that's so good.
1: yeah, I just, I think we share a lot of that, yeah. The curiosity and and just, I'm, I'm always, that's, I don't mean this as a, as a compliment for you and I, but I just, I, I love to be around other people who are intellectually curious.
0: Mm-hmm. It doesn't
1: have to be about the deepest things. It could be about silly things. I, and I'll, I'll, I guess I'll close with this. You talked about what I wanted to do and how did I get into writing your fantasy and all that. I neglected to mention this at the moment because I hadn't thought of it, but I'll mention it now. My dream job growing up, I had a dream job that I wanted to do. And I don't do it. I didn't come close to doing it. But I wanted to be a writer for Sesame Street, and the idea was that I wanted to do something that was inherently good, and was instructive. It was fun for kids, but I also wanted to wink at the adults. I wanted to while well, I was doing yeah, something good for kids, I wanted to see, okay, I know the adults are watching, and I'm throwing this out there for you. This reference that you'll get. And and I thought I just I just thought you know, this would be, wouldn't it be great to write those skits. I still think it's one of the funniest shows of all time, like the old school Sesame Street stuff. Not that I'm I'm watching it now, but you know, the idea of Oscar the Grouch as a person, you know, it's just, it's fabulous. Um, but that's just what I wanted to do growing up. I wanted to, I wanted to write for Sesame Street. Instead, I, you know, I cover fantasy baseball. So it's that's, not, that's not so that different, great.
0: right? Oh, I love it. Um, oh, that, oh, that's so good. And I, uh, oh, I had this whole thing I wanted to go into again, because of course, this is so easy to talk to. Uh, this is, this is amazing. Um, but I guess I really want to know too is what do you want more for yourself now? Or is it pretty much just like what you're doing? This is, this is it. This is where I want to be. This is great. And uh, you're good with that.
1: I I think now it's more, I'm more focused on what's fun. What, what's, what can I do? That's maybe more, what, what can I do? That is more, you, uniquely me than than somebody else. I, I don't know. I, w- let's be natural about it. Let's be real about it. Mm-hmm. Um, what do I, What do I enjoy doing? What What do I like to write about? Um, that's uh, That's not a great answer. But
0: um, <laughs> like, I, do you I have like, a specific uh, goal that you're still trying to get to? You know, I, th- I think my goals are more like emotional goals
1: and more like interpersonal mm-hmm. goals and stuff like that. You know, um, it, it's great to meet more people. This is the first, you know, in conversation of any depth that we've had. I mean, this, yeah, is, you know, this, this, is, a, this is a highlight for me. I've enjoyed this so much. And um, and I'm, I'm just glad we had to carve out some time today. It's, it's, it's been great. and yeah, I, I just get excited about, you know, when I got in this industry, it was niche and not everybody knew about it. I was joking. I actually put this on Twitter and I took it down because it, it kind of had a negative connotation to it. I didn't want it to. I read something in Sports Illustrated in the early 90s where they talked about they had a uh, they were upvoting or downvoting things in the sports media. And they were downvoting the idea that the New York Times was going to have a dedicated rotisserie column every week. They thought that was a bad idea. And I'm just so glad now that we live in a in a world, in a space where if you have a good idea, you can put it out there and people can find it. And right. if it's a really good idea, you know, you can grow a company out of it. You, know, you get to make a smarter. You, you get to bring positivity into the space. You, you get to, people get to have, you know, everything that HQ does with, with the convention, everything, you know, Tout Wars is coming up in March. Steve Gardner running the labor draft. So yeah. one of my favorite people. I just, I, I just, I want to have more, my my goals more, you know, let's meet more people in the community, keep having great conversations You know, every time I want to talk about the Cubs, I I get to send a note to Sarah Sanchez, and she'll make me smarter about the Cubs, and we'll talk about this and that. (laughs) She's one of my favorite people, and there's so many people like that. You mentioned Jeff Erickson. I got to play golf with the RotoWire guys a couple weeks ago, and Jeff and I have known each other for 20 years. You know, him and Tim Chuler. Are very dear friends so i think my goals are more of you know i want to play golf with more golf with tim Schuler. i want to play uh more golf with jeff erickson i want to have another one of these conversations with you hopefully in person i want to talk oh, to yeah. sarah about the cubs you know i want to talk to yancey about you know about radiohead you know stuff like that that's <laughs> what i'm looking to it's do it's
0: okay computer the Benz First, and uh, by today. the way the bends i think yeah. I, the Benz
1: i unequivocally think is better than okay computer
0: by the way yeah i, I, I agree I the Benz is end. the best acoustic rock album of all time so good it's it's so it's it's unbelievable uh all right well scott I, at least you're going to be in town for tat wars hopefully for sure right okay good I'll, at the very least i'll see you here in new york city for that and maybe i'll convince you to come off to arizona i don't care football whatever oh no you're sick this weekend oh my gosh crazy uh you can't go and do any podcasting or any coverage of football that week i don't know Um, I have to
1: get out there. It's uh, (laughs) it's definitely on my list of uh, on my bucket
0: list for sure. It's the best time, but uh, but Scott, truly, thank you so much for taking all this time. And before you go, tell everybody what you are doing these days and where they can find you. You sure? Uh, Scott underscore Pinowski on whatever Twitter is now, and uh, I'm hoping to expand
1: to more work on Threads and Blue Sky in the coming months. Hopefully, this conversation will be a nudge towards that. We're doing a ton of fantasy baseball content right now. Also, they're letting me sit on some of the Rotor World podcasting and, and some of their broadcast shows uh, with position previews. I'm getting to work with some of their excellent talents. I'm having a blast with that. I will be in New York for Tut Wars in the middle of March, and uh, you know, I, I've a, as you can tell from this conversation, I you know, I love to talk about. It doesn't have to be sports. There's a ton of things you want to talk about. A book, great book you read, or a great song you heard or great movie or tv show um you know um, even a good joke whatever it is you you drove by a lemonade stand you know um i'm all ears let's talk about it
0: yeah let's absolutely do that uh scott really thank you so much for coming on this was great i'm gonna go listen to thief and by belly and also um oh man the second one was a block party of course yeah
1: play this modern love by block party
0: there you go and make sure everyone listening you do that too if you don't know who they are um but that is it for today so on behalf of scott being asking my name is nick pollock And that was my friend, Scott Pianowski.